Hi, this is Brenton Powers. You're listening to Dwell on Truth. Dwell on Truth has been brought to you by TopGradePaving.com. I'm glad you've joined us for this episode as we'll be studying the book of Romans, chapter 4. So let's turn and begin reading Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and then we'll study it verse by verse. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That was Romans chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, about Abraham being justified by faith before he was circumcised. And the main point here is that just as Abraham was justified by faith, we too can be justified by faith. So Paul is giving a scriptural basis for the doctrine of justification by faith. Let's now begin studying Romans 4, verse by verse, starting in verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, was Abraham able to achieve or attain righteousness according to his own fleshly effort? In other words, was Abraham righteous by his works? What should we say then? Paul had just concluded in chapter 3 that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Yet, we don't overthrow the law through this faith. We're consistent with the law. So he goes back to the law of Moses, the book of Genesis, to show this great heritage of justification by faith, to show the history of the doctrine of justification by faith, using Abraham and David as examples. So the question in Romans 4.1 is, what did Abraham gain according to the flesh? If he was justified by faith. And he explains why he's asking this question, because some assume in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, some people assume that Abraham was justified by works. And if he was, then he has something to boast about. Well, look at me. After all, I obeyed God when he sent me out to a land he would show me. And I am the father of Isaac, the promised child. But he does not have anything to boast of before God. In other words, Abraham's own righteousness is nothing to boast about before God. He needed to be saved, just like you and me. Abraham came from a pagan background. His family did not know the Lord, and the Lord revealed himself to Abraham and spoke to him amazing promises, and Abraham simply believed. Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? I like that question. What does the scripture say? You see, a lot of our false ideas can be corrected if we ask that question. What does the scripture say? Sometimes we assume the scriptures teach one thing when actually they teach another. Some people read the Old Testament as if it's a list of do's and don'ts. But that's not what it's all about. What does the scriptures teach? What are all the stories of the Old Testament about? Are they just moral examples? Are they the stories of victories and failures so that we would copy the good guys and try to avoid the mistakes of the bad guys? Or does it actually show us that we're all evil, we all fail, and that those who are accepted by God are 
accepted on the basis of their faith in God, not by their works. So Paul goes on to quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And I love this verse. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, let me read it again. Pay close attention to every word. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was counted to him as righteousness? His works? No. His belief in God. God counts faith in his accounting. He counts that as righteousness. God considered Abraham righteous because he believed the promise, before he did anything about the promise, before Abraham demonstrated his faith in the promise, God saw Abraham's faith, and God considered Abraham as righteous. And this verse is written there not for Abraham's benefit alone, but also for ours. The very first book of the Bible tells us how to be saved from our sin. Believe the promise of God, that he would send a Savior the descendant of Abraham, the seed, the promised Messiah, the Christ. Paul says in another place that God preached the gospel to Abraham by saying, in you and in your seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news. And it's not found only in the New Testament. God preached it in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis 3, when God told Satan, about Jesus, that even though Adam and Eve sinned and fell from a right relationship with God, God would send a seed through the woman, that is Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the story of the Bible. Man sinned and God sent a savior. And Abraham believed that gospel and was saved. Sometimes people ask the question, well, if you're only saved by believing in Jesus, what about the people of the Old Testament? Were all of them lost? No, the scriptures here teach us that they were saved by faith, just as as we are. The only difference is that they looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise that would happen after their lives. And we're looking back to the time when Jesus fulfilled that promise before we were born, 2,000 years ago. So the New Testament is consistent with the Old Testament. The gospel is consistent with the law. And this is because God never changes, and his standard never changes. The way of salvation never changes. We may be incorrect and need to change, but the way to believe what is true and correct is to ask the question, what does the scripture say? And then we'll discover what God has been saying all along. Oh Lord, help us to remain teachable. Correct us when we make false assumptions, when we incorrectly understand the way to approach you. Thank you, Lord, that we can be justified in the same way that Abraham was justified, by faith and not by works. That we don't have to do anything to earn your favor, but that you count us as righteous when you see that we believe in you. So, Lord, I pray you would strengthen our faith. Help us to truly believe in you and in your promise, because you fulfilled your promise through Jesus Christ in his first coming. And we look forward to the fulfillment when Jesus comes again to receive us unto himself. We look forward to the ultimate salvation so that we may be with him forever. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus, I believe. Now, Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if we're saying that salvation is by grace, it can't be by works because it's not 
you don't get grace for working, you get wages for working. And wages, by definition, is not a gift, but it's counted as what you deserve. You get what you work for. That's wages. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. And I'm thankful to get what I don't deserve, because what I do deserve is death. As Paul says in another place, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want the gift, not my wages. And so let's stop approaching God on the basis of our works. We can't say to God, oh God, you've seen all the good things that I've done, because he's also seen all the bad things that you've done. He doesn't put our works on a scale and say, if your good works outweigh your bad works, then I'll accept you. No, that's not how a relationship with God works. A relationship with God is based on grace, God's unmerited favor. When we appeal to his loving kindness and his mercy and the gift of God, when he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, then we're relying on his grace and we can be accepted. Are there any other examples of people being justified by faith in the Old Testament? Yes. Paul gives us another example in verse 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 4. And that example is David, King David. David also speaks about the blessing of justification by faith in Psalms 32, verse 1, and other places. Let's read Romans 4, verse 6 through 8. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here Paul quotes Psalm 32, 1. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David is the second example that Paul gives in Romans 4 about the person who, who is saved by faith. Paul said that David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. In other words, Paul is interpreting Psalm 32.1 as teaching that God promised to bless us apart from our works, because David said, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So if we're talking about people who have iniquities and people who have sins, which is, well, let's be honest, this is all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God then how can we be blessed? Well, if our sins are forgiven and covered. Why? Verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. In other words, the Lord is just not counting it against that person. He won't hold it against you. Based on what? Your works? No, based on faith. Aren't you happy about that? If you're saved, you should be happy about that. You should be blessed, which means, oh, how happy. That's why the gospel is joyful news. You won't have to pay the punishment because Jesus paid it for you. You can be in relationship with God, because God doesn't count your sins against you anymore. They've been paid for, and he delights to give you the gift of acceptance, of justification, of salvation, of redemption. Oh, how I wish that I would keep this in mind. Sometimes our consciences are so plagued by guilt when the Lord has taken it away already. Therefore, we can rejoice. We can be blessed, not just can be, but we should be. We should rejoice, and we should be blessed. So why aren't we? Maybe we need to have the gospel preached to us again and again and again and be reminded that our salvation is not based on our works. 
or our religious rituals, or by being regulars at church. You see, when you're relying upon your works or your rituals, you can never enjoy this blessing. You either are filled with pride because you think that you are doing it and you deserve it, which doesn't give you any joy because you're just getting what you deserve, or you're filled with despair because you know you fall short and there's nothing you could do to change yourself. But I thank God that He accepts me. It almost brings me to tears right now. And maybe you're a Christian. You've put your faith in Christ. You believe that he died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, Satan, and the grave and the power of sin. But you need to be encouraged. You are blessed. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are covered. God will not count your sins against you anymore. Rejoice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise him. God is rich in mercy, and his love endures forever. But I want to speak to those of you who are not yet Christians. The first thing you need to do to become a Christian is to take that step across the line from unbeliever to believer, from being apart from Christ to Christ himself. Call upon the Lord, and you shall be saved. Repent, turn from the direction that you were going, and turn to Christ. And then he will lead you in how he would like you to walk. So take a step of faith today. What is it that God is promising to you? Accept it. And if you trust him, your faith will become evident in what you do. You're not justified by what you do. But how do you know that you believe? Well, based upon your faith, you will live. So we'll speak more about that as we study this portion of Romans verse by verse. So let's turn and begin reading Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's Romans 4, verse 9 through 12. And it's all about following in the footsteps of the faith, using Abraham as an example. The key phrase here is in verse 12, when Paul says, Walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So let's consider those footsteps. As we study verse by verse, I'll explain what we can learn from the life of Abraham about a life of faith. And how should that look today, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or not circumcised? Let's let the scriptures speak to us today. Now, let's go through Romans 4, 9, 10, and 11, and 12, verse by verse, to discover what the scriptures are teaching us. Notice in verse 9 that he's speaking about the blessing of forgiveness, continuing the theme from Romans 4, verse 7 and 8, where David talked about the blessing of forgiveness. Now in verse 9, Paul says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So it's an important question that he asks in verse 9. And he reminds us of his position after asking the question, is forgiveness only for the circumcised? Do you have to be circumcised to be forgiven, in other words? But Paul has been saying 
that faith is what's necessary for forgiveness and to be justified. And he's, so he goes back to the example of Abraham. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness, right? Yes. If you look at Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. I love that verse. But Paul knew as he was writing Romans that some Jews would have, would have the question, if justification is by faith alone, then why was Abraham circumcised? What was the purpose of circumcision? If you don't need it to be justified, to be righteous before God. You see, some Jews boast in their circumcision as if that's what makes them righteous before God. Well, do we uncircumcised Gentiles need to be circumcised to be right with God? Fortunately not. So, the answer to the question of verse 9 is, no, the blessing of forgiveness is not just for people who are circumcised, it's also for people who are uncircumcised. In other words, anyone can have this blessing. And circumcision is not the condition for it. The condition for it is faith. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? That he's the Messiah that would take away our sins? That he was killed for our transgressions and then rose from the dead? Abraham had faith in that, even though he lived a couple thousand years before Jesus was born. God revealed to him the gospel when he said, In your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So this blessing is not only for the circumcised Jew, but it's also for the uncircumcised Gentile. Abraham was uncircumcised when God blessed him with righteousness. And that's why Paul goes on to say in Romans 4.10, How then was it counted to him? In other words, at what point in time was Abraham's faith counted as righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And the answer, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Good point. He was declared righteous in Genesis 15, and later in Genesis 17, he was circumcised. Well, then why was he circumcised later if he was already righteous? Paul answers that question in verse 11 of Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So look at this closely. The first word I want you to notice is in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision. Circumcision is a sign. It's significant. It had a meaning. You see, it wasn't the circumcision that was his righteousness. His righteousness was given on the inside. Circumcision was something that was done on the outside. Cutting away of the male foreskin was symbolic. It had a meaning. It signified the removal or the end of the fleshly life, where we live only for our pleasures, which was the seal of the covenant where God says, I accept you as righteous, and he confirms outwardly what is true inwardly. It's the same with baptism today. If you're a Christian, you believe and trust in Jesus Christ for your righteousness. It's not what you do on the outside that makes you righteous. It's what God has done for you in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And when you put your faith in him, he counts that faith as righteousness. He considers you as righteous as Jesus was because Christ took your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And so, if you're a truly a Christian, you are saved by faith alone. So then why be baptized? Well, are you righteous and considered righteous by God before you're baptized or after you're baptized? Well, it's before you're baptized, when you believe. So why be baptized? 
You submit to baptism because it's a sign and a seal of the covenant. It shows outwardly that you have believed in the gospel inwardly. It's a profession of your faith and symbolic of what has happened to you spiritually. You see, your fleshly life has ended. You have been crucified with Christ and buried with him in baptism and risen with him. And coming up out of the water is a picture of you beginning to live a new life. It's not the ritual of baptism that saves you, but baptism is one of the ways that you express your faith to the world. It's one of the footsteps of the faith, just as circumcision was a footstep of faith for Abraham. Does that make sense? Another purpose for Abraham's circumcision, Paul says in the latter part of verse 11 in Romans 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So Abraham would be to us a kind of spiritual father, someone that we follow in the footsteps of. After all, he was one of the earliest believers in the Bible. The story of Abraham is written in Genesis, the first book of Moses, starting in chapter 11 and going all the way to Genesis 25. So we can read and follow the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. And although he was living thousands of years ago, all who are believers are sort of children of Abraham. We receive the inheritance that God promised to Abraham when God said, Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Maybe you could read through Genesis 11 through 25. And notice how God leads Abraham, and Abraham believes. No, his faith is not perfect, but his faith is in God, and his faith was real. He wasn't trusting in his circumcision. He was trusting in God's word. Do you have that kind of faith? Are you trusting in God's word? When God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, speaking of Jesus, do you believe God? When God said, listen to Jesus, do you listen to Jesus? When Jesus told us to be baptized, do you listen to Jesus and obey? Is your faith the kind of faith that produces fruit of repentance followed by obedience? In Hebrews 11, Abraham is commended for his faith when he believed God, when God told him to go, but God didn't tell him where to go. Abraham believed so much, he stepped out, not knowing where he was going. That's a great example for us. Let's step out and follow the Lord by faith. If we're children of Abraham, we'll do similar things to what Abraham did. No, we don't have to be circumcised, but for us, baptism is a way of showing that we're saved. Abraham was called to be circumcised, and he did it by faith. We're called to be baptized if we believe, and we should do that if we are following in the footsteps of faith. It's interesting what Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 4. He says, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, not only is Abraham the spiritual father, a sort of forefather for Gentile uncircumcised believers, but he can also be the spiritual father for circumcised Jews not because they're circumcised, but because they believe in him. If they are Messianic Jews, then they can be considered not only physical descendants and children of Abraham, but spiritual descendants of Abraham. The problem that we see so many times in the Bible with the Jews is that they trusted in their physical birth and thought of themselves as special children of Abraham. When they didn't have faith, they aren't the Messiah, and they really weren't true children of Abraham. Jesus said, If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And Abraham believed in me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. You see, Jesus revealed himself to Abraham, and he believed. And if you're a true child of Abraham, not only physical child, but also spiritual, 
not only in ritual of circumcision, but also in the footsteps of your faith, then Abraham becomes your father. He becomes someone that you look to as an example, and we follow in his footsteps, and we receive his inheritance. Ultimately, we receive the inheritance of God's blessing of forgiveness because we're co-heirs with Christ. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, and he receives the reward. But because of his grace, he shares the reward with us. He forgives us and considers us righteous when we put our faith in him, and we begin to follow him. Let me make one last point. If you read the life of Abraham and discover what kind of faith he had, you'll see that his faith was just to follow the Lord. It's not like so many people think of faith today, where you have faith in faith. No, Abraham's faith was in God. Faith in faith says, I just believe something and I'm going to make it happen. And there's people that teach this crazy doctrine called word of faith, where they trust that their words, if they believe in them, will make God do whatever we say. Sort of like God's a genie, as if we're leading God and God has to do what we believe he should do. No, if you read the life of Abraham in Genesis 11 through 25, you'll see a pattern. God initiates. God is the leader. God speaks first to Abraham, and then Abraham responds by just trusting the Lord and stepping out in faith. For example, when God told Abraham to take his son Isaac, his only son, up to the mountain of Moriah and sacrifice him there to the Lord, how did Abraham respond? Well, Abraham believed that God could raise his son from the dead. After all, this was the son that God said he would bless and use to bring the blessing about to the world. Isaac had to live in order to have children, in order that the Messiah could come through him. So let us follow Abraham's example. Let us continue in the footsteps of the faith as children of Abraham. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship with Christ. Are you walking by faith? We Christians walk by faith. We're going to study Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Why does righteousness depend on faith? Now, let's read through our text and then we'll study it, verse by verse. Romans 4, verse 13 and following. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, let's go back through these verses, verse by verse, to discover what it says, what it means, and how it applies to our life. You see in Romans 4 verse 13, the great promise that God gave to Abraham and his offspring to be heir of the world. You can't imagine a greater promise than to inherit the whole world. 
When did God promise him this? Well, look at Genesis 17, verse 6 through 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant. That's key there. This is an everlasting covenant. So it must mean more than just this world, which is not going to last forever. But God continues to make promises, saying, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What great promises God gave to Abraham. And Abraham received these great promises by faith, not on the basis of the law. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read verse 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Notice this isn't an earthly city. We'll come back to this as we keep reading Hebrews 11, now in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's a key for your faith. You can have strong faith if the one you're trusting in is faithful. And God who made the promise is faithful. Hebrews 11:12. Therefore, from one man and from him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Notice they didn't receive what was promised in their lifetime, so they must receive what was promised after their lifetime. Hebrews 11:14 For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland so this world is not their home the promise to inherit the world was not a promise to inherit the dirt and the the sea that are temporary no it's the world of what is to come as it says in Hebrews 11 verse 15 and 16 if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them so you see what great promises God had given to Abraham and his offspring so going back to Romans chapter 4 verse 13 what is the great basis for these great promises Paul says they did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith why is that such a great basis for receiving the promises well he explains in verse 14 of Romans chapter 4 for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs faith is null in other words which is it is it the adherents of the law or is it people who have faith it can't be both you can't be saying you're justified and made righteous according to your faith if you're justified and made righteous according to your works. It's either or. So say hypothetically, God's promises are only good for those who adhere to the law. Then we have a great problem. Then no one would be able to receive the promise because no one has kept the law except for Jesus. No, we've all broken the law. Then the promise would be void. God wouldn't have to give the world to anyone. If we read the fine print of the law, or even the, the greatest commandments, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
we couldn't earn such great promises. That would be a great problem. But the promise is not based on law, but on faith. So it's got to be based on faith alone. Faith plus nothing. Not faith and works or faith plus law. And he explains more. Why, why can't it be by the law? In Romans 4.15 For the law brings wrath. What is wrath? It's God's wrath. God's righteous anger against the transgression of the law. Next Paul says in Romans 4.15 But where there is no law, there is no transgression. When God draws a line and we pass it, it's called transgression. But Abraham was considered righteous by faith before there was a law. So it's apart from the law. And so he could look at him with pleasure, not with wrath. Now what about us who have been born after the law? Well, Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not a jot or tittle from the law will be wiped away until it is all fulfilled. Now Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, his death, and his resurrection so that God can deal with us on a different basis, not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of grace. See the next verse. Why does it depend on faith? So that the promise may rest on grace. Grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's the opposite of the wages for our works. You see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's grace is eternal life. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. That's why it's called grace. We want God's promises to rest on grace because we cannot earn it. There's no other way to inherit anything good. Grace gives us the good that we don't deserve. So if God rests his promises on grace, shouldn't we rest on grace too? And if we do, there's something else great as we continue reading Romans 4:16, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. There's a great guarantee. So there is assurance, a certainty, a great confidence that we can trust, believe, and hope in. If God can guarantee it based on grace, then we will get it based on grace. God's guarantee gives us the good that God has promised. As opposed to the condition of keeping the law, there would be a 0% chance of getting what God promised. But since it's conditioned upon our faith in Jesus Christ, that makes grace and the guarantee 100% sure. Now, if you don't have assurance of your salvation, it might be because you're not resting on God's grace through faith, because you're not resting on Jesus, who took God's wrath for you. So trust in Christ, rest on grace, then you will inherit the world with Jesus. So God the Father has promised God the Son that he would inherit the earth. In Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And let's be careful. As Christians, we're not called to take over the world. The church is not called to take over government. As some people teach, this doctrine called dominion theology, saying that now is the time when Jesus is inheriting the whole earth and we're supposed to take it by storm. No, but we are waiting for when God will put all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. Psalm 82 verse 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Jesus is God, and he will inherit all the nations. But he will also share his inheritance with us, who are true believers. And whoever receives Christ, those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And therefore, we become co-heirs with Christ. Jesus inherits the earth, and by faith in Christ, we do too. What a great promise, based on great grace, because of our faith in a great God who makes great guarantees. Matthew 5.5 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Let's go on to Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. What a great statement we have from God. It's another great promise that God gave to Abraham, calling him the father of many nations. That's what Abraham literally means, as God changed his name there in Genesis 17, verse 4 and 5. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So notice these are great promises, but more important than the promises is the one who made the promises. So let's think for a minute about the great promiser. As it says in Romans 4:17, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. How great is the God that Abraham believed in? How great is the God that you believe in? Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead. He's the one that started life on earth. And he rose Jesus from the dead. And many other people God gave life to who had died. And Abraham's body, as far as being becoming a father, was as good as dead. So was his wife, as good as dead as far as their fertility was concerned. But God is able to give life to the dead so he can give an old couple children. And he could raise Abraham's son from the dead if he were to die. And he will give life to all of the dead in the general resurrection from the dead. He will raise both the just and the unjust, the Bible says. What else can our great God do? He calls into existence things that do not exist. In other words, he speaks things into existence. When he said, let there be light, there was light. Light didn't exist before God spoke it into existence. What other things did God call into existence? Well, he counted Abraham as righteous. God is able to do that based upon faith rather than by works. And he breathes into us a living spirit. We become born again, a new creature, something that we weren't before, but God calls us his children and declares us to be saved. What a great God we believe in. What a great God that Abraham believed in. Is that the God that you believe in? Or is your God weak who can't raise life from the dead, who didn't create the heavens and the earth and everything in them? I believe we ought to believe in the same God that Abraham believed in. Then you will have no problem believing that he can do what he has promised. So make sure that you believe in the God that Abraham believed in, the one who can raise the dead. And he did raise Jesus from the dead. As we conclude, let me just share a couple of other encouraging scriptures along these lines. Hebrews 6, verse 11 through 15. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the lesson here is, we must patiently wait as we believe, because we do not yet see all of Jesus' enemies being put under his feet and him taking possession of the earth. Through faith you will inherit what is promised. 
Finally, Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God will keep his promises because of his grace, because of his guarantee to those who have faith like Abraham. Next time, we'll study what kind of faith Abraham had, what kind of faith justifies. And you might be surprised by what you discover as we study the Word of God verse by verse. What kind of faith do we need to be justified, to be counted righteous by God? My name is Brenton Powers from Calvary Chapel Bible College. We're continuing to study through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. Tonight we will study Romans chapter 4, verse 19 through 25, about Abraham's example of faith. We'll learn what kind of faith God counts as righteousness and what kind of faith we need to have to be accepted by God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and begin reading verse 18 through 25. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's Romans 4, verse 18 through 25. Now, let's study it verse by verse. First, we'll observe that it's all about what kind of faith Abraham had. Then we'll understand what kind of faith God accepts and counts as righteousness what kind of faith we need to have to be justified before God. The theme of Romans has been justification by faith. That means that God counts me just as if I've never sinned when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. For the righteous shall live by faith. But what kind of faith are we talking about? Faith means trust, belief in someone or something. And so it's important to know what are you putting your faith in or whom is your faith in. So it's important to believe what is true, what is right, to put your faith in someone who is faithful, who is trustworthy, just as Abraham did. His faith was in the living God. Do you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's not enough just to believe that there is a God out there. Let's learn from Abraham's example, and hopefully we will grow in our faith as we study the Word of God today. So notice in Romans 4.18 what kind of faith Abraham had. His faith was in the better hope. It says, In hope against hope he believed. What does that mean? Well, what does the word hope mean? Romans 8.24 helps to define the word hope. It says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So there's different kinds of faith in the same way as there's different kinds of hope. Hope, in the Bible, is a confident expectation of the good that will come to you in the future. If you have hope, you have assurance about what is coming. 
If you don't have hope, then you don't have assurance. So Abraham's faith was in the better kind of hope, not the kind of hope that's based upon human ability, but the hope based upon what God says. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 4:18, in hope against hope he believed that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So Abraham's faith was the kind of faith that depends on God's word, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Do you remember one night God told Abraham to go out and look at the stars of the sky and number them if he was able to. And he began to look up and see how many stars there are, too many for the eye to see and the mind to count. And yet God said, as numerous as the stars are, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham was an old man. He hadn't had any children, not even one yet. And his wife was beyond the normal age for bearing children. Yet God had said, you're going to have so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And so he didn't hope in the typical hope, oh, I hope that one day maybe I'll have children, as in wishful thinking. But his faith rested upon God's promise. The kind of faith that is in a better kind of hope. Secondly, the kind of faith that depends on God's word. Is your faith in a better hope? Does your faith depend on God's word being true? Rest your hope in what God says he will do, as he has told us. So do you know what the Bible says? So as we read the Bible, we hope that our faith will increase as we consider what God has told us. As the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now some people's faith is not in what God has promised, but rather in what they wish would happen. They say, I'm believing God for a Mercedes Benz or a Lamborghini, but God never promised a Lamborghini or a Mercedes Abraham's faith was in what God had promised. And if we have saving faith, we'll be trusting in what God had promised. Are you trusting in the promises of God? Or in what you're making up in your own mind? You can't tell God what to do and, and expect him to do that. That's not faith. That's presumption. That's not the kind of faith that we're talking about. Faith that saves is based on the promises of God. So let's go on to Romans chapter 4 verse 19. The third point about what kind of faith Abraham had was that his faith was not a weakening faith, but a faith that grew strong. As it says in Romans 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. So notice that first phrase, he did not weaken in faith. And the last phrase there of Romans 4.20, but he grew strong in his faith. Did you know that your faith can be either weak or strong? And it can be strengthened or it can be weakened, depending upon what kind of faith you have. Do you have the kind of faith that Abraham had? A kind that didn't weaken? A kind that grows strong? Well, tonight you'll learn how Abraham's faith grew strong and why it didn't weaken. And we have some clues in this verse. Romans 4.19, as we already read, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Now, normally, if you're a 99-year-old man, and you have a 90-year-old wife, and you consider your body's ability, you wouldn't have the faith to believe that you're going to have a child. But his faith wasn't in his own body. He considered his own body, that it was as good as dead. He couldn't produce any offspring, since he was about a 100 years old. And he considered how his wife Sarah was barren. But his faith, even then, didn't weaken. See, when your faith is in what you see, 
then it will be a weakening faith, because what you see is weak. The Bible says everything that is seen that is visible is temporary. It's what is not seen that is eternal. You cannot see God, but there is an immortal, invisible God who can bring life out of death. And that's the God that Abraham believed in. Thus his faith was not weakened. His faith was strengthened. How was it strengthened? Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So a couple of clues here. First, his faith was not in his own flesh or his own ability or in his wife's ability. And you shouldn't put your faith in your husband or wife either to bring life out of death. So it's implied that our faith should not be in humans. We shouldn't trust in man or in woman because that's not the kind of faith that God accepts. That's humanism. God accepts those who have faith in Christ, who was fully God and humbled himself to be found in the appearance of a man. So don't lift up human nature, but recognize God as overall. Abraham's faith was not a wavering faith in verse 20, because God does not waver. When God says something, that's how it is. God doesn't change his mind. There is no shadow of turning with him. Great is his faithfulness. Therefore, our faith should be solid as a rock. And Abraham's faith was a faith that grew stronger. As it says, he grew strong in his faith. Now, that's one of the purposes of this program. As faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we want to study through the word of God so that you can grow strong in your faith. That's the kind of faith that saves. It's not enough just to believe for a minute that there is a God and even to call upon his name and say, Oh God, I believe. You need to continue to believe and to grow in your faith. Otherwise, your faith will weaken and it may not be a true faith at all. And also we see that Abraham's faith was in the glory of God. In Romans 4.20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So what should we be doing in order to grow in our faith? give glory to God. If God is glorious, he deserves the glory from us. Giving glory to God doesn't mean giving something to him that belongs to us. Giving glory to God just means to recognize and to ascribe the glory that is due to his name. When people say good things about us, we give glory to God. We don't accept the glory because anything good that's in us must come from God because only he is good. And when we do that, we'll grow strong in our faith. That's why it's important that we go to church and worship God. We should sing songs of his glory, how great he is, how he is able, more than able, to accomplish his purposes. Because our faith is in a glorious God, not in a God that we should be ashamed of. Do you know the promises of God? If so, don't they make you want to give glory to God too? Why? Not just because he promises it, but because he always keeps his promises. If I make such a great promise to you that you'll have more children than there are stars in the sky, you would laugh at me. Well, who am I to be making those kind of promises to you? But if the God who created the stars and the sun and the moon and the earth and the planets, if he's able to create those, then he's certainly able. And verse 21 says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham's faith was a fully convinced faith. He was fully convinced that God was able. That's the kind of faith that is necessary to be saved. You need to be fully convinced. 
A partially convinced faith or a non-convinced faith is not really faith at all, as far as God is concerned. The Bible says if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will generously give wisdom to that person without finding fault. But if they doubt, that person is unstable and shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. So faith that saves is a faith that is fully convinced. Let me say, if you're not fully convinced about the promises of God, there's a way to become fully convinced. Study what the promises of God are and look into the history, God's track record of how he has kept his promises. He's been 100% faithful to fulfill the promises about the first coming of Jesus Christ. There are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that say where he will be born, how he will grow up, what kind of miracles he will do, what kind of teaching he will have, how he will die, how he will rise from the dead and ascend to the heavens and sit on the throne of God. Now, if God accomplished all of those promises, then the promises that remain to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. In other words, the more you look at how God has been faithful in the past will help you to be fully convinced that you can have faith in God for the future. And Abraham's faith was in the ability of God, as it says in verse 21. So a saving faith is a faith in what God is able to do. And again, it starts with creation. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that he's able to do that, then you can be fully convinced that he is able to do anything else that he sets his mind to do. But we don't just believe anything about God. We believe specifically in the promise of God. As it says in verse 21 at the end there, that God was able to do what he had promised. And it's implied in Romans 4.21 that his faith was in the faithfulness of God. For he who promised is faithful, we read in Hebrews 10.23. So God is not only able, he not only makes great promises, but he's also faithful to fulfill what he has promised. And then in Romans 4.22, we learn that Abraham's faith was the kind of faith that counted. It says, that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And that's in quotation marks, counted to him as righteousness. It's a quotation from Genesis 15.6, where it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is speaking about the certain kind of faith that Abraham had that God counted as righteousness. That's the kind of faith that we need to have to be counted as righteous. Do you have that kind of faith? The kind of faith that counts? His faith was a justifying faith, a saving faith, a faith that makes a sinner righteous in God's eyes. That's the faith we need in order to go to heaven. It's the faith we need to be accepted by God on Judgment Day. I want you to have saving faith, the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Thanks for listening to Dwell on Truth. I'm Brenton Powers. Tune in again next Sunday at 8 a.m. For more, go to dwellontruth.org.